If it feels like there are a lot of films about Stalingrad, you're not wrong. A quick search in your movie streaming service of choice, or if you're so lucky, a brick-and-mortar video store, will reveal ten of them. Although, only one, to our knowledge, has a scene depicting a Rachel Weisz handjob. It's enough film content to spin off a podcast of its own, and I've already pitched Earwolf, a show about German-Russian World War II films with an emphasis on fighter plane aerodynamics slash equestrian cavalry enclosures hosted by fifth-year college seniors from acting school with limb fractures called The Stalingrad Stall Stall Stalingrad Cast Cast Cast. For comparison, there are only five more films made about Pearl Harbor, and that's if you don't disqualify the Michael Bay movie, which we do. This Stalingrad film is the most successful Russian film of all time, earning $51 million domestically in Russia and $68 million globally. And while the Friendly Fire Project examines how a country views itself by how it tells its war story, we are also very interested in what other countries consume for entertainment. Stalingrad accomplishes both. But does that say anything about the importance of this battle in the story of World War II and the historical record? Well, in our experience watching war films, sometimes quantity doesn't equal quality. And this is a film that tries very hard to project quality. Shot on state-of-the-art equipment, much of it in 3D, the film has a glossiness to it that could attract as many filmgoers as it could conceivably repulse, and its director, Fedor Bondarchuk, is cut from that same cloth as Michael Bay, polished music video director turned film director. This film also does that thing that Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor does, which is construct a love story within a war story, and... Just like a stuffed box office doesn't translate into critical success, foreign language films rarely penetrate the American zeitgeist. It has a lot of strikes against it, but will this film's aim be true for the assembled hosts of Friendly Fire? You know what they say, there's no life beyond the Volga. On today's Friendly Fire, as we discuss the 2013 Fedor Bondarchuk film, Stalingrad. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie show that is the bloodiest podcast in human history. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I think I think we might have the bloodiest podcast going. Ours? Yours and yours and ours? I think there are horror movie podcasts that can probably claim uh, that title, right? Well every time we we do World War II, we we add millions of bodies to our podcast body count. That's yeah, right. that's right. A horror film could never Horror rise movies to that usually number. have you know, they kill like fifteen undergraduates. You know where a horror movie podcast yeah. has a speed is in the sex. Lots of sex in a horror movie. <laughs> but wait, zombie, yeah. zombie podcasts have a lot of deaths. Oh, zombie yeah. podcasts have no, a lot of No, what are we even bodies. talking about? It's superhero movies. They kill right. hundreds of Entire millions of people. Entire cities. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. That's fair. Planets even. Yeah, planets. But we've, we, we, did, uh, we did Star Wars. That's true. They kill a planet in that. That's true. A mil- yeah. Millions of souls all screaming out and then silenced in it. <laughs> yeah, millions. There's a planet of millions. We've got that beat by a country mile on this planet. 
But this movie, Stalingrad... It take a planet of millions to hold us back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, two million people died in the ballot, Battle of Stalingrad. That seems like a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and this movie chooses to focus on seven. Yeah, seven people that, that are stand-ins. They you know what? You say that while laughing, Ben, but this is like... Saving Private Ryan did the same fucking thing. Mm. Hey, all war movies do this. <laughs> I I just detected a tinge of like uh, incredulity on on your mic that I'm trying to uh, interrogate. <laughs> now, for all of you with bingo cards at home, that's two squares. <laughs> You're projecting. Okay, that's three. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm working on a Stalingrad movie where uh, where every single one of the two million people is given one second of screen time. <laughs> So we just see them one after another. We see the moment of their death, like bullet splatter, bullet splatter, death in a fire, fall off a log. I read that the director and two of the lead actors in this film had been in previous movies called Stalingrad. How many did you do? Did you research how many movies have been called Stalingrad? Uh, There seems to be at least two other narratives called Stalingrad and one documentary there may be more um but there's there's a 1989 Russian film called Stalingrad that the director acted in and also one of the other Russian actors acted in and then there's a 1993 German film that the uh that the German lead guy was in so and he was also in Valkyrie that German guy if I were to ask you how many films there are about Pearl Harbor and how many films there are about Stalingrad, which would you guess had had more films about it? Well, but the question isn't Mm. about Stalingrad because we've watched a movie about Stalingrad already, Enemy at the Gates. We've watched a couple of movies about Stalingrad, right? Hand job behind the gates (laughs) is is what people call that movie. Um, uh, But uh, we're talking about how many movies are actually called Pearl Harbor. Oh, well, I mean, that could be a pretty high number, too. Yeah, I think it's maybe lower. How many adult films are called Pearl Harbor? Just that is probably a pretty high number. <laughs> I want out of this podcast. Can I start a separate podcast where it's just There me? are more adult films called Pearl Harbor than there are films called Stalingrad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things we can say about this film called Stalingrad it is, that, is that it is a film called Stalingrad. Now, I, now, I, I, now, all of a sudden, I'm hearing a tone in your voice that I'd like to interrogate, Ben. Uh, Adam may have been projecting before, but now I'm mm. concerned that you are you're you're trying to shit on this movie Stalingrad. I'm surprised it didn't have a colon in the name. Mm. Whoa, <laughs> that's one of our highest criticisms of a film. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how you know. I, there's a lot about it that worked for me, but overall, I I, I didn't. I mean, I don't want to review the movie now. We've got a whole we got a whole podcast to get through. Right. The text that you sent me, John, uh, as you embarked on watching this film the other night is illustrative of one of my key criticisms of the movie, which was you just sent a text that was like, is this movie set in Japan? (laughs) (laughs) The movie opens. It's one of the most bizarre (laughs) framing devices of anything I've ever seen in a movie. The movie opens in more or less contemporary Japan, tsunami uh, aftermath Japan, and it is a very weird. A very weird framing device that I have been trying to untangle. The idea being that the woman at the center of the film is the mother of a aging doctor, a Russian doctor that has been sent to Japan 
to help rescue trapped German tourists. Yeah, they're they're in a collapsed building under tons of rock. And we spend a little, little bit of time with them trapped under un, under this collapsed <laughs> building, these Germans. It's like, we yeah. need to make bookends to this film. Let's roll for country of origin yeah. that, that our tourists are <laughs> under this building. And then, and then- It's all randomized, it feels like. It's so random. And the girl is just like, I miss my dad. She's trapped under this building. And the, and the German, uh, or, and the Russian doctor, whose face we never see, yeah. says, oh, you know, don't- you know, I know, I know that feeling, or whatever. We never, we never see his face because they can't pull off that Saving Private Ryan morph from yeah, right. young face to old face. Well, because he's not born during the movie, so yeah. they wouldn't need to. Yeah, that would be weird. But then, um, but <laughs> yeah, nonetheless, right, no, it looks be. like a, a a young man and old man makeup somehow, for, even though we never. Yeah, see Yeah, for his whatever face. reason, and then and then she says something. I don't even remember the line of dialogue, but something like, "Well, you wouldn't know what it was like to." miss your dad or I don't know what. And he's like, <laughs> yes, I would. I had five dads. It just, see, it's yeah. like a weird. It's, he uses this line that he's surely been using at cocktail parties for 50 years. Yeah. He's been drinking out on that his whole life. It's dialogue dads. written in reverse. How do we get a character to right. answer in this way? Well, I guess this question is a way to make that happen. And then she says, you didn't have five dads. That's impossible. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the sides of the screen get all wavy like, here we go. Here we go. Off to a <laughs> magical, <laughs> magic <laughs> land. <laughs> there is a lot about the bookends that feels random, but what feels like a choice, a real choice, is the depicted relationship between Russia and Japan. Which That also, feels significant. Why? Also feels and Germans. Weird. And Germans, right. Well, yeah. so the, the Russian doctor and the Germans, maybe it was a thing where they were like, how do we get a Russian to be saving Germans? <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Where would we find a situation where a Russian could be saving yeah. Germans? Ah, the tsunami, the Japanese tsunami of 2011. Yeah. But I don't, I cannot imagine during that period that the Japanese were reaching out to the Russians for help. Don't send us letters, or if you do, send them to Adam at go fuck yourself at maximumfun.sex. But that just didn't seem, even in the moment, it, se- it felt like this is a little, this, because I'm always on the lookout for Russian language or Russian made films to see like that real Russian take on, oh, yeah. on the world. It's one of your things. And I was like, this is pretty self aggrandizing because it, it felt like <laughs> here we are, the Russians, finally. Your your nation is We've in need. We've forgiven the Germans. Finally, <laughs> we've forgiven everyone, or at least these three. <laughs> the the most generous nation. Does he launch into his story in German and then switch to Russian when it's voiceover for the rest of the movie? That is a really good question. This is one of those movies that that we're reading subtitles, but there are there, there's dialogues being spoken in Russian and German, and that's a plot point, mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. That that there are characters speaking to each other in Russian and German, and they don't understand one another. Right, and talking shit to each other. Right, we have the advantage of, or disadvantage, of just reading it all in the same color text. You know, why don't they yeah. do that? Why don't they put Russian in green text and and German in blue text or something? So, so Americans and English speakers can more fully understand what's going on. Wouldn't that be a better device? That would be great. Yeah. How, how do we make it easier for us? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of the most generous nation. I mean, this this movie was like one of the highest grossing movies in of all time in China. So I imagine that would be useful as a device for a lot of different audiences. Yeah. 
Take that, Adam. That don't speak German and Russian. Yeah, you really scored a point on me there, yeah. John. Yeah, why are you so defensive? <laughs> but after we're in the movie, right after we go through this this twinkle curtain of setup, and we're there, and we're there, we're in Stalingrad. We go we go through some familiar Stalingradian scenes. Um, it's kind of like a submarine movie, a Stalingrad movie. You always start on the other side of the river. Yeah. You right. always cross the river under withering fire. Yep. You watch people blown up and sink in the river, and then you arrive on the other side, and it is a total hellscape. You climb up the bank through rubble and people catch, catching on fire. More people on fire in this movie than in most. <laughs> A lot of people that are on fire and just continuing to fight the war. Which was, you got to admit, pretty gnarly scene. They kept on kept on rolling. Uh, yeah. Kept on rolling so much so that it was like, it felt like this is either documenting a real event where an entire uh, platoon or more of men just fought on fire for a long time. Or right. this is rewriting the story. I really want to scrutinize this moment a little bit because this is insane. Yeah. To depict it this way, also insane. Yes. It's, it's, it's absolutely bug nuts. Why didn't you laugh during this moment? I know I didn't. I was terrified. I was too. I was too. (laughs) This shouldn't work, but, but something about that scene does. And I, I can't explain why. There were multiple moments in this film multiple whole sections of this film where I caught myself and we've talked about this before where I was physically recoiling yeah. and you know and cowering and my face was contorted in like Ugh! and sure that was maybe the first one where I was like well I've never seen this on a film on film before yeah there's a few scenes in the film that really reminded me of Chinese cinema and this is one of them where it's almost like magical realism that they're on fire and still just marching toward the German lines and shooting Germans. And then like when they get there, you know, wrapping their arms around the Germans and, and causing them to immolate along with them. Like it, it, it almost feels like the, the kind of imagery you would see in a Kung Fu film or something. Right. Where a crouching tiger hidden dragon would be like, people sword fighting on treetops sure. in a Russian film, the, uh, the sword fighters are on fire. Right. right. <laughs> uh, from even before that, from the very opening scenes in Stalingrad, I mean, the, 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 let's just leave the, the parts that take place in Japan off now. Um, yeah. it had let's that pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> it had that crazy and you guys can tell me what it is, but it felt like a filter on it that looked like the movie yeah. 300. And there are, so many scenes in this movie because they they choose to film a lot of the battle sequences in super duper slow-mo there's so much slow-mo in this movie and it's 300 level slow-mo where people are going yeah and and speed ramping too where it'll be like slow motion for a second and then like somebody will do a punch and it's like super fast motion yeah, a lot of that, but the but then the filter on the background, the sky always looks sort of copper or um, mother of yeah. pearl. Even you know, there's a kind of uh, there's a depth of field that that feels like it's like a, it, 
there's almost like a silver plate to it. You remember how popular HDR photographs were like five years ago where like everything was perfectly lit oh, yeah. on, on your Instagram photos? That's how this film felt. It felt, and because it was shot in 3D natively, I wonder, what? and this, this is a question for you, Ben, like I wonder if in shooting the film in 3D, you have to both light and compose in such a way that it gives you this look of this HDR effect look where everything is perfectly lit. Hmm. This movie was 3D? Yeah. You could see this in 3D in theaters. Absolutely. And a lot of the a lot of the compositions like you could tell this was shot natively in 3D because a lot of the comps were like coming at the camera in kind of an unnatural yeah. way for a mainstream film. Like, oh, I didn't. I didn't. When shit blows up, that. it blows up at you. Wow. Yeah, I was watching this on my Apple Watch mm-hmm. uh, in the bathtub while <laughs> eating a spaghetti dinner, so I didn't. I was, didn't pick up on all that. Yeah. I wish that I'd seen it in IMAX. Frankly, in 3D. Yeah. I thought that the the Instagram filter stuff was really overwrought toward the beginning of the film, but they really relaxed after the first. 20 minutes or so and then it like the color palette is very specific but it doesn't it doesn't feel like it was all achieved in post the way some of those early scenes do i agree yeah at first it was super Uh noticeable and then it and then it um the film chilled out it's gotta come down to what your position is as a creator right do you want it to look real or do you want it to look beautiful the choice in this film appears to have been beautiful Right? It doesn't look real. Yeah. But, it, but, but, but it, well. But what I mean, an I, interesting choice for someone making a war film. Because I feel like it, at least for me, it felt real. Uh, like it looked unreal to the point that it achieved a kind of hyper real. Um, Whoa. <laughs> strap in, bros, because I'm about to get real. <laughs> You know, like we see this in art sometimes where the, 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 where the attempt is to give you an emotional experience and, uh, and to create in a, in something that's immersive and knowing that this was meant to be in 3d, I now see that it was meant to be completely immersive and to have that immersive feeling take you someplace that maybe if you spend a ton of time trying to get the grayness of trying to trying to get it to feel sort of that flat gray that it probably was you wouldn't it wouldn't have felt as dangerous mm. i mean the movie 300 i resisted going to see it because it looked like it was a goofy it was goofy my resistance continues i've never seen it but when i finally saw 300 i recognized that it was a different it was a new kind of thing at least for me is that on the list ben yes yeah okay course you know that that the 301 also on the list 301 whatever it takes yeah uh <laughs> it uh cruella Deville is back <laughs> so 300 it becomes affecting by virtue of the fact that there is magical realism in it i mean magical realism yeah realism works because it because it takes you somewhere it's like a fever dream yeah. about ancient history or something and the combination of that look and super slow-mo it's fever dream. That's exactly that's exactly the feeling. You're you're just like, whoa, where am I now? I don't have this film paper 
chambered, but what is the difference between magical realism in a film like this and magical realism as depicted in a superhero film? I think they're super different. The idea of a, the idea of a fever dream is not a suspension of disbelief while people shoot laser beams out of their fingers. It is uh, trying to duplicate that feeling that people describe when they're in a car accident and everything slows way down and they and they they see a butterfly out the window. It's trauma. Yeah, that's there's your film paper. Yeah. Right? How do you depict something that's so awful that there's just that you can't capture it any way other than going outside of the 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 normal frame of how you make a film? Right. And that's why we see movies that have soundtracks that are that sound bad, but are meant to create in you a, a state of emotional discomfort or, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the Johnny Greenwood effect. Right. Where it's just like, yeah. you're like, yeah. why? I hate this. Stop this. But, but it, but it takes you someplace. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of like modern Trent Reznor soundtracking happening in that same way. Yeah. The soundtrack in this film is extremely sentimental in a very specific way. It felt like it kind of never stopped to me. Like there is always some some really like needle pegging emotional music playing no matter what was going on. Music by Angelo Badalamenti. Uh yeah, he did uh he does a lot of David Lynch films. Wow. Uh of Mulholland Drive fame is Angelo Badalamenti. Blue Velvet, like really? like films of notably interesting Music. scores yeah so this was a uh this was a, a multinational production is that true or did columbia just buy the rights to this i mean i'm unclear about how about the relationship between production and distribution how in a film like netflix this? put into this movie and how long was it in <laughs> theaters before it appeared on my watch great question i mean it's a russian production it was distributed by american companies but I don't think it had American money put into it. You know, I think I think you're right because no Americans appear in this film. There wasn't some uh, GI that came in to save the day, so we know that an American company didn't put any money in it. Right on down to the <laughs> waving Canadian flag in the earthquake rubble scene yep. of either the of either one of the bookends, like the Canadian flag is there to say this was a multinational effort. Therefore, it's not weird that there are Russians here. Yeah. Because they're also <laughs> that other most helpful nation, the Canadians. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. 
Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight, a great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. So this movie is set in this building, and this building is strategically important because it abuts the Volga where the Russians are building a crossing. And I felt like that was referred to a bunch, but I didn't didn't have a sense of like what kind of crossing they were talking about, if they were talking about like a pontoon bridge that they were building or if they were filling in the river in some way because there's there's a shot at the very beginning where you see guys like walking out across the river in like ankle deep water yeah you know for all of the kind of cg wide shots that they show in this film they never give you like a territorial establishing shot that shows where the building is you know and the and the square and and the other building that the that the germans are in you know like you, you really are left to puzzle that out as a as a viewer. That's a good point. It's really man against building. Well, so as the film story goes. So all of this is based on a kind of true aspect of the Battle of Stalingrad. There was a building at, called Pavlov's house and it was named after the Russian soldier that that with a small platoon held Whenever off. the doorbell rang, uh, their mouths would water. <laughs> Inside, you know what Pavlov <laughs> is a very common name in Russia. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But they, but they did it. They so this movie isn't isn't like based on a true story, but it really is sort of uh, taking a ton from this uh, from this Pavlov story. And that building did actually front on that square that we see in every Stalingrad, right? With the statue of the little kids dancing la 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 around a. Uh, fountain and the this little platoon of dudes held off the Wehrmacht for like two months or whatever from this building and the Russians it's kind of like that church in Berlin the Russians have maintained the destroyed uh, rubble of the building as a monument within Volograd or whatever the hell they call it now I read a quote from the Russian general that oversaw the Battle of Stalingrad that the Germans lost more lives taking Pavlov's house than they did taking Paris. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's true, right? I mean, and so that building was situated in in like a key like a keystone position within Stalingrad and I think any Russian film goer of any age knows that. Because this is just one of those it's like the it's like uh, Washington crossing the Delaware or whatever. It's like a uh, yeah. It's just a th- oh. So that you're saying that that context that the movie seems to leave out like wouldn't be necessary for the yeah. Russian film going on. Right. I think anybody in Russia watching this would know exactly where that building was and why it was important. Hmm. And so wow. <clears throat> for whatever reason they didn't do they didn't have to do a helicopter or a boom shot to or some kind of like shot of some general standing over a table going, we've got to capture this building to get across the river. Uh, <laughs> it's just one of those things that everybody knows. I don't know if if you know this or not, but how much like continuity do present day Russians feel with USSR Russians? Does this feel like a patriotic film to a, a modern day Russian or does it feel like a 
a film about like a a different country. The whole Putin project it has been to rehabilitate Soviet Russia as like a golden era. There's been a major collective project there within the kind of Putin administration, whatever you would call that party that he's that he's rebuilt to kind of take away the Yeltsin years to just sort of whitewash the whole project. Now, in Ukraine, they don't feel that way about the Soviet Union at all. And I and they probably don't feel that way in Kazakhstan. And I know they don't feel that way in in Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. But for a for a Moscow audience. Yeah, this is just I mean, Stalingrad is one of those events in history where if the city had fallen and and the Germans say it a couple of times in this movie, there wouldn't have been anything between them and India and two million people died to keep them from crossing that river. And that's just yeah. I mean, that's just a thing that's not going to get erased from their from their identity. You got pretty close in that uh, uh, to a, a moment of pedantry. So I feel like I should just get it out of the way. Um, whores in India do not have six arms. What? <laughs> that's not been my experience. <laughs> that was your most Norm Macdonald delivery of a moment of pedantry ever. <laughs> Note to sell. <laughs> wow. You know what's great about that scene is like that is used as a as a as a rallying cry. Whores in India. Yeah. You live through this. Yeah. You get those six armed whores. That's right. Interesting how in the uh, the cut two shot of those of those soldiers, the Volkssturm. Uh, doesn't really work. No, nobody's like, right on. That old guy's like, I'm too old to fuck. <laughs> and the young kid's like, what am I going to do with a, even a second arm, let alone a sixth? My understanding of the strategic importance of Stalingrad was that it was like where the oil from the Caucasus and Kazakhstan was brought into into Europe. It, it was definitely like capture Stalingrad and then you have access to all of that oil and all of all of those resources. Which is why they blow up the oil tanks at the beginning of the film, right? I think they blow up those oil tanks because um, because they're about to be captured. Yeah. Well, they're on that embankment so they can dump all that f- fiery oil on the Russian soldiers. Right. But they didn't count on Russian soldiers being willing to fight while <laughs> engulfed in flame. Uh, we're we're going to return to those burning Russian soldiers because even though that scene only lasts a minute, Boy, it's a uh, it's a spooky. Sp- you never saw a thing like that. Where did you ever see guys just coming out of an oil fire, just still? If you had soldiers like that in the Middle Ages, you'd you'd be emperor of Europe. Give me fifty burning soldiers, and I'll give you <laughs> Stalingrad. <laughs> General Roderick. <laughs> <laughs> the the Russian soldiers are like opening their MREs and it's just like that uh, goo that is like the fire retardant that stuntmen use. I'm, this isn't food. <laughs> you want me to put this where? And then okay. do what? Okay, man, gather around. I'm going to tell you about our mission today. Gather around the campfire and I mean really close to the campfire. <laughs> You're going to need to get used to this. Hey, can we play a little... Uh, fantasy revisionist war history for a moment like say the nazis win at stalingrad and they go for india why is it just assumed that 
that they make it to India and take India. Everyone always sets India as like the country on their horizon. Alexander did this. Like, we're going to make it to India and then the world is ours. And then they get attacked by elephants. Right. And what, monkeys. India was his Stalingrad. What makes, uh, what makes the German military believe that it's just going to be a cakewalk once they get past Stalingrad? You are, you are making a great point. Um, on the other side of Stalingrad, it's not like it's just fields of bananas all the way to India. Right. It's not water slides. No. It's not <laughs> just like, there. all you have to do is just pick fruit from the trees and just walk at a, at a leisurely pace. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a pretty rough road. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of food, not a lot of people. The, what, I thought about this a lot uh, in watching this movie. You know, one of the, what, I think what's, what's described as one of the major major failings of the whole the whole Wehrmacht plan to invade Russia was as they went across Ukraine and Poland and Belarus and as they as they progressed and we saw this yeah we saw this depicted in come and see just make enemies of every single person they met as they walked when you look at Ukrainian revisionism now a lot of it uh describes how much the Ukrainians hated the Russians because of the famines that immediately preceded the war. And they have described initially greeting the Germans as liberators. And then they realized, well, then the Germans just like burned them alive in churches. And one could say missed a huge opportunity to, to say to the Ukrainians as they passed, Hey, join us and help us fight the Russians. And instead the Germans made enemies of everybody they, they touched and so when they got to Stalingrad, they were already fighting rearward actions against the people they had they had brutalized. Isn't that an inherent weakness in national socialism that like anybody not German is automatically an enemy? Yes, it is. the It is the problem. <laughs> it is one of the many problems of Nazism. Uh, that it is not a friendly. <laughs> I didn't say. It, I didn't say it was the only problem. <laughs> no, but it is. It is a major problem. The xenophobic They really need to work aspect. on that rep. I think. Yeah, that's right. If they had been a friendlier Nazis, you know what? You hire an agency. <laughs> you get some marketing money behind it. But you know mm. they're at they're at Stalingrad. They're already out of gas. They don't have winter uniforms, and their supply lines are cut because or too long. They're too extended. If they'd made friends the whole way, is what I'm saying, mm. then they they would be getting all those those potatoes. It wasn't just the march to Stalingrad; it was the <laughs> friends we made along the way. That's right, <laughs> and they couldn't. Well, that was sort of the that's that's why like Alexander was able to expand such a big empire was that he didn't. He made friends along like, the way. He did. He had boyfriends the I mean, entire time. <laughs> every village, every village, he was like picking another guy out of the ranks. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's really the point, isn't it? It's that Adolf Hitler didn't fuck enough, enough. during World well, War II. he didn't II. really at all. Yeah. That's one of the things we know about Hitler. First of all, he only had one ball. And second of all, <laughs> Eins. we don't even know if he ever had sex with anybody but his, what is it, the little niece. Mm. We don't even know if he had sex with her. Mm. Not a sexy dude. What? What? His niece? Oh, yeah. The love of Hitler's life was his teenage niece. That's Blondie? Is that Ava Braun or is that somebody no, else? No, it's not Ava Braun. It's his there was this he was he fell in love with his with this little this much younger relative 
And and she what the fuck? Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but there's wow. a whole Hitler story that you guys don't know. I didn't, I didn't think that there was new awful shit to learn about oh, Hitler. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's uh, the, the Hitler story. You can just <laughs> you can just read and read. I told you, didn't I, that I went yeah. through a phase where I was watching uh, Hitler art auctions. I didn't think that was a phase. I thought just that that was a <laughs> well a quality of yeah, yours. I don't know what uh, whether it is a phase. <laughs> But yeah, you can go. I mean, Hitler paintings are on sale right now. You can go buy them if if you are, if you're really that broken. <laughs> and now for just eighteen easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine a month. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you're right. There's no. They are dumb. They are dumb to think that that winning Stalingrad is is the end of their toil. But that's the classic. That's the that's the classic uh, borderline personality disorder problem, right? You think that this problem that's right in front of us is the last problem we're ever going to have. It's interesting that quality of like, in certain ways, a country is always fighting the last war. But as a country is in the war that it's in, it's already looking forward to the next one. And that's that's what's happening here, right? By looking at India, you're looking past Stalingrad. This is the Adam axiom. Yeah. Or one of many. One of many. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is like oh, if, yeah. if these countries just meditated more and remained in the present, uh, their chances of, of winning wars would increase. Right? Mm. Fight the war you're fighting. Yes. <clears throat> Fight the war you're fighting. <laughs> hey, so this is a Russian film for Russian audiences, but the Germans are you know, heavily characterized, and we we have a we have a character that we follow quite qu- closely on the German side, and there's a lot he does that is despicable. But I do feel like the movie spends a few moments trying to humanize him and like show what an unhappy and sad person he is. Yeah, Khan is very uh, unhappy to rape. He's a depressed Nazi rapist. He's a he's a bru- he's a brutal <laughs> character, but they but the movie did that thing where they cast an extremely handsome actor in the role. Yeah. If the bad guy in a movie is extremely handsome, mm. you know you're meant to either develop sympathy for him or he is going to be the most hateful thing you've ever seen right he's either going to be beautiful because he's an angel of death or beautiful because he's complicated that's just how it seems to me like that's how casting works he does terrible things but then he becomes a kind of um uh, through his relationship with that with that poor girl that he that you know he brutalizes into a sort of stockholm syndrome's fate and yeah. just his like he he's clearly suffering from some major PTSD. God, when the townspeople were being marched away, and Khan like gets on that cool uh, treaded little tank, motorcycle tanks. like ATV thing, right? Uh, I thought for sure Masha was going to be like double middle fingers into the boxcar on her way out of town versus getting onto the ATV with him. Yeah, like well, she just realizes looking around. I think at that moment that he's her best option. German loading you into boxcar is never going to be a good choice. Right. right. They're, they're like, we're going to resettle you someplace nicer. I really wonder if there was something lost in translation with a couple of these scenes yeah. between Khan and Masha, because like one of the unintentional 
funny slash horrible moments of the film is when Khan's looking in the mirror after raping Masha and he's like, you know, you've you've made me do this. You've turned me into this beast. And I'm like, oh, that that cannot be what he's saying here. Right. But he's saying it about the Russians. And so it is awful that he's using like super rapist justification yeah. language. Uh, but he's putting her in place of what he's what's he what he is because he's in the, in that same moment calling her entire people despicable but the comedy of those moments also is that she repeatedly says i have no idea what you're saying you're speaking german to me and i don't speak german and she's presumably saying that to him in russian which he also doesn't speak and we never we don't get that because like i say they didn't color code the subtitles at the very end of that scene he's going on and on with his monologue and she doesn't understand she reaches out for him and then we cut to the next scene and that moment stuck with me for so long like trying to figure out why she's doing that in the aftermath of that of that violence like what do you think that means like is it the stockholm syndrome of a of a rape survivor in wartime like is that simplistically all that was that's very much where my mind went and also just hopelessness right cuz right. like little kids in the streets are are yelling at her for you know this th- choice she didn't even make of sleeping with a german yeah this is the thing about about all the women that we end up uh, looking at in in wartime and calling collaborators you realize that a lot of them didn't you know either didn't have a choice didn't feel they had a choice and it's a classic kind of it's a classic civilization problem where we blame uh we blame the women for decisions that ultimately like how do you survive a war so this is the thing about stockholm syndrome that you end up defending your your persecutor but that's not because right. that's not just a simplistic brain meltdown you actually you spend a ton of time in this you know, in this person's emotional envelope and their justifications for their behavior. And it, it becomes like a, I mean, it is a primary relationship in your life, even if it is based in violence and, and lack of consent under duress. Right. And so, yeah, so you can't, it's, you can't, I don't think most people can sit in a situation like that and maintain, maintain defiance. But doesn't this movie condemn her in the end like when Chivanov snipers her and calls her a whore like to me that felt like the filmmaker condemning her as a character well no because Chivanov is the worst of the Russians and I felt it was a tragic moment Hmm. I mean I just thought of her as a tragic character throughout I uh, you know yeah American films about war don't often have a Chivanov. Yeah, or if you do, you you have one unlikable guy in the squad, but at the end of the movie, he always ends up being a hero of some kind. You know, my feelings about this scene are a little more mixed because I sort of got mercy-killing vibes when Masha got taken out, like almost relief. Because there wasn't any good outcome. What is she looking forward to at this point that's not worse than the worst stuff she's experienced already? But there's no mercy in his performance of that. Like no, 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 like this is purely like my feelings about Masha, independent of of who pulled the trigger. The film is letting us off the hook of because we care about Masha at this point 
but in a very complicated way. Very complicated. Speaking of women who are killed in this movie, I wanted to touch on the woman that is determined sort of ad hoc to be Jewish and is burned in a truck with her her little kid. That felt to me like a a moment in the movie that's I I don't know like how how much anti-Semitism still plays a a role in modern Russian life, but the sense I get is that it's like a pretty pervasive issue still. And I know that you know Stalin racked up quite the Jewish body count of his own after the war. Uh, this this is a a moment that definitely like is the Germans were bad because of their hatred of Jews moment and. Uh, and all of our all of our hero soldiers are outraged by what they're watching. Did you think it was strange that her death was constructed as less of an execution and more of like an almost ritual? Like like they refer to it as a sacrifice yeah. in an almost pagan kind of way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like this is we we give a sacrifice to our gods before going into battle. I mean, we've unfortunately seen a lot of Jewish people boarded up into buildings and then burned in in the Friendly Fire Project, and it's awful every time. But this is the first depiction of that that has that sort of couch to it. But also, as Ben is saying, it becomes the galvanizing moment right. that brings our squad together. They are so outraged that they launch an attack. Yeah. Um, and it it's like the trigger moment for the whole movie. It is an extremely strange scene. And, I, and another aspect of it is that all of her fellow Russians stand around with their heads bowed, nobody getting involved, nobody standing up for her. It's an, an awful scene. And I, I think what you're saying, Ben, is it's kind of a little bit of um, it's a little bit of virtue signaling, like taking the like giving the Russian side an opportunity to seem um, valiant yeah, because because our squad is the one that goes to her. Not to, well, obviously doesn't rescue her because she burns. But yeah, but it's, avenges uh, it's a, her. It's a cause proxy, right? Seeing that in this movie made me think that there is a widespread appetite to see that kind of virtue signaling in the Russian film going audience. I do not think that the Russian, uh, the the present day Russian people think of themselves as defenders of the Jews. Yeah. But I think there is a global... Uh, That's John.Roderick <laughs> at MaximumSex.Fuck. Go, go sex yourself at MaximumFuck.Sex. <laughs> um, but I do feel like globally there is a desire uh, probably of all people to position themselves relative to the Holocaust in some positive light, right? If you, can, if if you are Egyptians making a movie about about people in Thailand and there's an opportunity to have a character denounce the Holocaust. Like hey, why as long you? as we're over here, what, let's uh, <laughs> let's also just take a moment to distance ourselves from Hitler. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Lord knows I do it in just about every podcast. I record. Boy, you sure do. There are a lot yeah. of people on the internet right now that take an opportunity every day to distance themselves from Hitler. Also a lot of people that don't, that don't, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that have uh, every opportunity to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they really end up waving a weird flag. Uh, we have not 
talked about the central figure in this film and the tent pole that the whole that supports the entire plot of the movie, which is Katya. Yeah, let's talk about her. Katya, who first appears in the movie as a bedraggled urchin, <laughs> um, who comes in, you know, that's punching down. Come they're, on, <laughs> they're, they're they occupy this building, and all of a sudden, this like have this you tried weight- the bedraggled urchin at Nobu? It is spectacular. <laughs> Seared on the outside, yeah. raw on the inside. Don't even use wasabi. It doesn't need no, it. Yeah. The, yeah. Flavor's, <laughs> the flavor's in the urchin. Uh, like she tumbles out of, you know, and she's. Um, she lives in kind of a burned Wes Anderson apartment. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's She's got like Rube Goldberg devices all around to, to make her tea. And mm. even the narration, like, like she's introduced onto the scene and. And Papa is the narrator, and they're like, she just refused to give up her life in her apartment. Yeah. And she's walking through her apartment, not even attempting to dodge the bullets that are smashing into the walls around her. Yeah, like like for her to be that, she would have to be completely insane. She would have had yeah. to have lost her mind. Right. Uh, to be living in this wreckage of a building and refusing to leave. Like, what a crazy move. And yet, she very quickly, like when she first appears... I thought, oh, here's a nine-year-old. My first thought was, a nine-year-old boy. And then we look at her again, and it's like, it's a 12-year-old girl. And then it's a 16-year-old girl. And all of this is happening just in hair and makeup. Right. And then all of a sudden, she appears to be a 19-year-old. She's basically Amelie. She's kind of Talia Shiring to me in that, how old is she? Right. Like, really hard to tell. But then she becomes this 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 sort of dream. Talk about fever dream. These guys are like in the in a pitch battle for their for their lives, and this beautiful and and largely sort of sexless beauty, like a like she becomes a thing that they care for, care about, that brings them together. It never really comes between them. It threatens to throughout the whole movie because they're all in love with her. All five guys. Are in love right. with her, but actually there are six guys, which I wanted to ask you guys about. Yeah, that the the guy in the navy uniform doesn't isn't doesn't count as one of the dads. He's not one of the dads. Well, he's in a different branch, so you know. Right, right, right. Navy guys never count as dads. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the uh, they're gone so much of the time, right? Uh, but but so we're, we're <laughs> the plot of the movie is that this woman. <laughs> Is in love, not in love. She, she, her life is saved by and affected by her relationships with these five men who are in this building with her for some amount of time that the movie compresses to a matter of a few days. But actually, if, if this is Pavlov's house, it's actually a couple of months that they're all living together. Right. And so much so that although the father of the, the Russian doctor that appears in Japan at the beginning of the movie, although none of these five guys is his actual father, because we never see her have sex with any one of them, that throughout his life, because he says right at the end, he's like, my real father was Sergei, Sergei Brin or whatever. Right. <laughs> but but uh, but these five guys are my father's. And I'm just trying to imagine like what his real dad felt like felt about that story yeah like throughout his whole life his mom his super 
apparently super crazy mom is like, yeah, 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 you're real, you know, your dad or whatever is. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, it's like when a parent tells a kid to call one of their friends uncle yeah, so and so yeah. when they're not related, <laughs> right? Like or like, kind of or their stepdad comes into the house and is like, you're gonna call me dad from now on. Yeah, and you're like, I have a dad. He's like, I'm kind of dad. Disrespectful now. to Sergey's memory, huh? Yeah, but mom, mom, mom in his childhood was like, you have five fathers. And they all died before you were born, and none of them ever really hugged me even. I kissed one of them yeah, one the time. Yeah, the thing about that is that Katya doesn't really regard them all as equal, and she likes them very differently, and even dislikes some of them. Yeah, right. Some of them are super dislikable. Yeah. A couple of them are like neutered sort of dad dudes. Yeah. She never lets Chivanov pet her hair, though. That's true. There's some hair petting that happens. Yeah. I mean, the beautiful boy that whose whose name in this film is Sissy, mm. who actually, when we see him in several war scenes, is like a super total badass fighter. Yeah. But he's also super beautiful, and we see them crush out on each other from moment one. But the only one she ever really like the surprise relationship that comes out is her relationship with with Captain Gromov. Like, yeah. I didn't see that coming when all of a sudden they're alone together and. It's not really a makeout session. I also never thought that it was credible that Katya would leave her apartment for any reason. And all of a sudden she's being stashed across the street at the lookout. Was it Sissy that took her to that to the yeah. lookout? And didn't he say wasn't there some ruse like, Come with me, I'm gonna show you a magic dragon? Or like, I have a toad that, that farts gems and she was like, Okay. I mean she's not like a she's not a rocket scientist. I mean all it took was a hot bath to to change her way of thinking that's altogether, all, that's right? That's all it takes for me. Yeah. One hot bath, <laughs> I, and I'll, I'll follow you anywhere. The magical realism of the birthday scene was something that I think it took effort for me to get through. The war slows down. Somehow they make a chocolate cake. They retrieved a bath and boiled enough water to fill it up. I had so many questions. <laughs> and somehow she didn't notice any of this was going on. How are you living in a Thomas Kincaid painting inside Stalingrad and not drawing all the fire? Like, how is that not your last night on Earth? That's true. The, 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 the Germans across the no man's land are like, do you see all that candle? Where, where did they find curtains? Where did Sasha find a tux and have it be clean? He's carrying it with him. Don't you remember? There's, they, they actually say, the one guy says he's been carrying that bow tie uh, through the whole war. So it's in his pack. He's waiting for this. Op- He's been waiting for this opportunity. Hey, Sasha, that's valuable MRE room <laughs> that you're taking up with that tie. Yeah, but that tie... That's probably a choice that Benjamin R. Harrison would make too, right? <laughs> yeah, but but the, listen, the tie has a, has a naked lady on the silk liner, so it's it's serving two functions. Oh, it's it's his jack tie? Yeah, it's his jack also tie. also his formal wear? That's mm. totally explained. I mean, we, we're set up with that character to believe that he's... He's mute, and he's mute because of the trauma of war. Yeah. And then gradually throughout the film, he just sort of starts talking. We never have... Because he's the mute character, it's it's um, it's um really laid out there that we're going to get some moment where something happens. Either s- something thaws him or something jars him loose, and he's all, all of a sudden going to start talking. But instead, he just sort of... He just sort of starts talking... <laughs> At one point, not very much, but he says some things. 
And then it turns out he's an opera singer. I mean, that's the moment that you know that the that the romantic relationship has been unlocked. Like if he can fully bloom in that scene and she can realize a happy birthday, like there is hope for a better future at this at this point. Like the entire film pivots at that moment. Because she's starstruck by him, right? Yeah. She he's the one that to her is is truly a rock star. Yeah. I mean every one of these every one of these five fathers does have a pretty unique path to her heart. Yeah, and then India uh, in the distance. India in the distance, right. It's all the six-armed... You have to go through her heart to get to India. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I was amazed that the film started off with her as a completely traumatized character and then just bled the trauma right out of her until she felt like just a, just a, a waif, like a fairy almost. Uh, anomaly right. somebody that was just charmed by everything the only thing we didn't see is her with a with a butterfly on the tip of her finger slowly flapping <laughs> its wings while she you know while she said fly fly like she became really 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 um a blank slate for us her acceptance of the kindness is such is is an example of that right like because if she was still traumatized, I think she would enter the room and see the cake and go like, what the fuck? Like, why are you using your resources on me? We need to live until tomorrow. There are a couple of quotes, a couple of characters say say things that are truly heartbreaking. And she says that at, right in this period, she says to one of the other characters, I'm really happy and that is this awful feeling. Yeah. And they don't go, and I think in a lesser film or in an American movie, the characters would, would exposit on that more. This movie just lets that hang. And, and to its credit, it lets it hang because I sat there and went, ugh, like, of course that's a feeling that we all know where you're, you're in a moment that's perfect with somebody and you're like, there's no path out of this moment where my heart doesn't break somehow. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and it, in, in this situation where it's like, it's not just that tomorrow they're probably not going to love me the same way that they do this moment. It's like this building is going to blow up in a cataclysm and everyone dies. So that really, that really makes the, the pain of, of that happiness stand in bold relief. Yeah. I think you made a great point, Adam, that it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around her leaving after her stated antipathy to that idea at the beginning of the film. Like the math of the movie is that she's going to have to not be around when they all buy the farm. And that's pretty clear early on, but, um, yeah, she's such a cipher that like she can she can say like I I'll never leave this building again at the beginning and and then just totally change her mind without any seeming justification. And maybe that's just because she's so traumatized like it like she is really living moment to moment. Yeah. The building is under attack the over the course of the entire movie and uh the the german captain peter kahn is uh not doing a great job of capturing the building and is uh 
in a lot of trouble with the colonel that's commanding this area. But it really feels like Peter Kahn doesn't seem to have a lot of like urgency about anything he does, except for the one time where he's like racing to rescue Masha from the cattle car. He, he almost seems like a postman or something. He's like, yeah, like I just go deliver the mail every day and then I go home. I feel like what he's what he's telegraphing there is uh, he's a character with complete fatalism. And, and we hear the backstory of several of these soldiers where it's like, oh, this isn't their first rodeo. Every single person here has already fought in multiple battles in this war and has already seen, yeah. you know, countless quantities of death and, and atrocity. The captain just seems like he already understands that there's no way to win this. He no longer believes in the any cause. And that's why he retreats to this woman that reminds him of his wife. Like he's lost the plot completely, but somehow duty and his, because he's also, he also explains that he's a kind of Prussian aristocrat. Um, right. And so he's just caught in this thing where he's like, I mean, where the duty that's baked into him means that he's going to keep doing his job, but he's no zealot. And also he can't, he's not afraid of anybody, right? The Colonel, and all the colonel's threats that just sort of bounce off of him because he re he realizes that what is I mean the colonel what firing squads him he, there's nobody to take his place like right. every warm body is needed and he's a you know he's an officer that commands I guess a certain amount of respect from the troops but the fatalism in that guy is he's not my guy right but I mean he's <laughs> he's the German that we are that we're left with yeah you go to war with the German you have Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Not the German you want. It's so true. His fatalism, I guess, is in contrast to the fact that the Russian characters are defending their homeland. And so as yeah. awful as life gets for them, they never they never stop fighting because it because they're real stakes. That fatalism comes into relief once again when uh when Hensa gets stabbed and all of a sudden Khan gets elevated into being in charge, like he's like, fuck. Great. Like, yeah, right. like that didn't help, actually. The guy who threatened to execute me dying is actually a bad outcome right. in this case. Well, and, and Hensa gets stabbed because the captain brings a, brings a captive in and they didn't frisk him well enough. Check the boots. That's the lesson. Yeah. Is part of it that he is in the Wehrmacht and he knows that a bunch of fancy tanks are going to show up eventually and make this building capture th situation much easier. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's some of that. I read uh, a moment of pedantry about those tanks that I thought you guys might find interesting. The numbering on the German tanks is incorrect. One tank has the number 716, which would make it the sixth tank in the first platoon of the seventh company. A German tank platoon had no more than five tanks, so it should actually end with 715. Hello, pedant. Wow. Where have you been all my life? Yeah. This pedant cannot function in the world because they <laughs> watch a movie like this and they're distracted by things they like that. They have too much going on. In, yeah. a, in a better life, in a world where I wasn't so traumatized, that would be me. Mm. <laughs> I would just be painting Ronan, thinking about that time. I rode a tank, column Ten of tanks into Paris. Tending to your model trains. Yeah. One, two, yeah. It is time to construct the rating system that we will use to rate Stalingrad, the 2013 movie Stalingrad. 
Not the 93 movie Stalingrad. That one will have a different rating system. Right. I really wanted to make this a scale of one to five flaming Russian soldiers. I think that is a vision (laughs) that will haunt me for the rest of my days. Uh, I also wanted to make the rating system Buckets of Dirt Porridge, Mm -hmm. which was a fairly harrowing story. Right, the the and, grain and silo concept. was blown up, and so they went out and grabbed buckets of sand because there was grain in it, and you could filter it out. Yeah. But it always tasted like dirt. Uh, but this might be on the nose uh, in its own way. I'm going to make it a scale of one to five fathers. <laughs> <laughs> We're kicking out the Navy dad. <clears throat> Navy dad doesn't count. <laughs> Navy dad makes six. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go one to five fathers here because that's, I think the, the movie makes a strong case for itself in that way. This is a movie about five fathers, whether or not you agree with the truth of that in terms of uh, young Sergei's given story about his real dad and the other dads that his mom knew. Like that's, that's sort of a core concept to this version of Stalingrad. I'm I'm resisting more and more the idea of giving Friendly Fire films a four thing rating, but I think that that is like got to be the average that a Friendly Fire film strives to become, and then the great films exceed that, and the and the not so great films are unable to get to the four things. I think this is a forefathers film, and here's why: I, I was so afraid that we would come into this conversation painting it with the red bad critique of its Instagraminess, like that its glossiness would be a reason to hate it. And I think for some reason, and I don't know if we did a really great job discussing it, it rises past the level of how it looks. I don't know how it does that, but it did. And I think there's just a brutality about Stalingrad that forces you to take it seriously. You could aim all of its explosions at the camera and it can be a transparently 3D shot film in a way that could kind of cheese a person out. But Stalingrad's brutal. Stalingrad rises above all of the tricks that a modern director will give it in terms of how it looks and how it feels. I think that is an awful kind of magic that this conflict brings to bear in the story this film is kind of the love child between the omaha beach scene in saving private ryan and the apartment scene in fury thought a lot about those two films and i watched this uh-huh. the main problem that i had with it was that the there was such an equivalence given between the relationship between khan and masha and sergey and katya like they're really giving equal time to both in a way that I didn't quite need or understand. Both sides, Adam. Both sides. I know. One of the last lines of dialogue in the film is why I'm going to give this the forefathers rating. And it's putting, it's putting the feelings in a way that I've never heard before. And I wish, I wish this was a thing that was said to veterans instead of thank you for your service. This is the best gift I've ever heard given to a veteran verbally, which is, thanks to you, I have no idea what war is. That's the kind of gratitude that I have a a strong feeling for when we think about 
the veterans of our country's wars and the feelings that other countries might have toward their veterans. I don't want to know about this, and thanks to you, I don't. Why has it taken so many war films to finally like get to that crystallization of that feeling? It took seeing this year's Stalingrad to get it, and I'm grateful to it for giving me that little gift. Forefathers, for me. Uh, I did not enjoy the movie as much as you did. Uh, that sentiment is is an interesting take on you know the gratitude that we show veterans, but it didn't it didn't strike me as uh, particularly original, and that comes in the midst of the Japan uh, tsunami rescue scene, which is a framing device that is. So bizarre. I just cannot, yeah. I cannot get it out of my head. What a strange choice that was. Uh, like, like why bother? <laughs> like, what does that add to this film that the film couldn't have just done without it? And I enjoy sentimentality in films and uh, a fan of melodrama, but this movie, the, the melodrama and sentimentality were too much for me. And, you know, maybe... I would have been more forgiving of that if it had been against a more realistic looking film. And a, the stylistic choices uh, are, are ones that I just have a problem with in general. Like I have a problem with them in 300 when they're doing all the speed ramping and stuff. And I had a problem with it in this. Like these guys are, you know, unkillable kung fu badasses when they just run out the front door of the building to kill 14 Germans and then run back inside. Like they dodge mortar explosions. There's like, it's just, it was too silly and it just didn't work for me. It's very John Wicky, huh? But it's like, it works in John Wick because it's like, I don't think that they mess with the, with the speed of reality as much in John Wick. Mm -hmm. Like there are slow motion things and there are fast motion things, but it's not both things in one, in one take. And I'm just not on board for that stuff. And uh, this this movie uh, did not work for me. I'm going to give it two fathers. All right. Oof. It may come as a surprise, but I really liked this movie. Um, the framing device of the tsunami situation was super goofy, but I think it was... I think what they're trying to do is... Take a situation like this where the necessity of the situation requires that everyone die. Like no one survived. Two million people died. And to try and make a movie about that where it is connected even in the most tenuous way to the present so that we see that because if you make a movie where just everybody dies, I I think it kind of resides in a maybe a distant past that we can't connect to now and so therefore don't care about and this this strange bounce that they do where they're like no 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 the there's not even a m night reveal where they could you know they could have waited till the end and then the guy says and that was my mother and we're left to go like oh whoa this whole time they don't even do that i mean he half as soon as she's introduced or you know shortly after he's like and that was my mother and we spend the rest of the film realizing you know watching that and and maybe i mean i definitely was like well which one of these five guys is his actual father it turns out none 
it's weird, but I see where they were going. But the the super slow-mo, you know, like in John Wick movies, in in these contemporary movies, I don't like that. And I don't think it works because there's a lot of just impossible combat. People in hand-to-hand, I mean, John Wick, by the end of that movie, every bone in his body would be broken. And yet he walks out of there, you know, he's got like a bloody nose and a Band-Aid over his ear or something. And we're, and we're left to just, those movies are so comical. I mean, I like those movies, but they're just, they're comical. And I felt like the battle scenes in this movie mostly hewed to at least a, a real life. And they also feel like punctuation instead of run on sentences. Like, like you get a brutality in a Mel Gibson war film that goes on and on and on. And, and it feels skirmishy in this film in a way that I think helps make it less pornographic. We lose a lot of Russians in this movie. In the, I mean, at the end, there's only the six that survive. But we see members of their squad get killed um, in that, you know, in that that scene that you're describing, Ben, where they run out and attack the, um, attack the Germans, you know, I think they, when they get back and count their numbers, they're like, well, we lost 14, but they, but we killed 27 or something. I mean, it's not, it's not clear that they, I didn't see their super, superhumanness in it. And there's not that, I mean, it's a war movie, right? So there's always going to be scenes where our guy, stabs somebody with a knife then throw then it's slow-mo twists in the air he grabs it and stabs somebody else there there were just a couple of those though i sure do like a trench shovel being used as a weapon yeah that's nice in general that's big fun but the but the crazy coloration the 300 ness of it combined with the like the savageness of it where it's savage but not in a way where Everybody that dies is just some unnamed guy in a club or some, I mean, you felt, it's not like you, we got to know the, any of the German soldiers, but there was, there's, it, there seemed to me to be like a, a realistic amount of savagery such that I felt like this was a classic war movie. It fictionalizes the details and doesn't try to fictionalize the big picture. So it's not something where anybody in this movie kills Hitler. Um, it's just fictionalizing like what the rooms looked like, basically. But the but the scope of the battle and the and the trueness of the time are maintained. In a way, I I see what you what you were saying, Adam, about it being a cross between Saving Private Ryan and Fury. And I was you know, and I came out. I rode for Fury too. Fury was. Already a cross between Saving Private Ryan and Fury, <laughs> right? But specifically the scene in the apartment. Yeah, but this was a this was a movie that was a cross between Fury crossed with Fury crossed with Saving Private Ryan. Mm. <laughs> anyway, i i was I was affected by the movie and I was into it. I was never bored. The whole little middle part of it, where we are in a Wes Anderson movie. I could have and probably should have objected to it, but I didn't I didn't feel like any of the characters were given real cookie cutter personalities. Each one of them sort of had a twist to who they were and why they were behaving that way. I completely understood how they fell in love with her and she them and why and how 
tenuous and short term that was and how they all knew that the fuse was lit and that this was not going to work out. And that, you know, that broke my heart and kept and kept it broken. So I'm going to come way out and say four dads plus the Navy guy. Whoa. For, a, for either a half dad or just a, a dad that's in the wrong branch of the service. Wow. What I'm not going to give it all five dads. <laughs> yeah, because clearly well, Navy dad isn't a whole dad. dad oh, Navy dad's not a whole clear. dad. And also like weasel dad, I didn't feel like all he taught her to do was shoot. So, and she was a natural at shooting. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't do much there. No. So I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how I, I feel. I leave it to the listeners to rank Navy dad. <laughs> um, That'll go great. <laughs> Four dads and a Navy dad. That's me. I wish Sergey was a little more specific about the dads. Like, you know, my mom told me I had six dads, but between you and me, only three of them were that good. Yeah. I had, I had, and I one had, of them was a Navy dad. I had so. three, gr- I had three great dads, a dad, <laughs> A guy that was not a dad and then a Navy dad that didn't count for some reason. Yeah. I'm only sending out two Father's Day cards. Let's be honest. Oh, wow. All over. Like, not a tight grouping of scores there. Mm -mm. All over the place. That little guy down there? I wouldn't worry about that guy. <laughs> you're, I felt like your four stars was was your way of saying, like, here is here is Friendly Fire norm. Yeah. I, and I agree with you that our that four stars has become kind of our norm. That to give something a three and a half stars feels like a little 80%, bit of a diss. That's that's like a B, right? Yeah, like what a, you want is you want a B movie, like a sporto B, right? I've always uh, aspired to be the norm of this podcast. Like I come in and you guys go, Ben, ben how's it hanging? And I say, short, shriveled, and a little to the left. Your jocularity masking just a very deep, deep alcohol abuse yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ben's two dads. Ben, would you would you would you say that that was a C minus or a D plus in this case? Two dads is forty percent of the dads. That's a failing grade. Is D plus a passing grade? As someone who you had forty percent a, a lot, John. What what grade is that? A, a D plus. Um, a D plus got me out of high school. I had a D, <laughs> D, well, I had a D minus cumulative, but, um, I got one D in high school. I got, I got very good grades. And then senior year, I turned in one D. I got so many a, D's in an English class. I got D's grades Threw some D's on that transcript. I'll, I'll show you my grade card. I'll show you my transcript one time, Adam, just to, oh, I'd love to see just that. to turn your hair white. I'd love to know who your guy is though. Who's your guy, John? Give me a give me a second to think. I had a hard time. I thought for sure this might be the first episode of Friendly Fire where I just didn't have a guy because there was not enough dissimilarity between the dads. I felt until one very specific scene. It's after the birthday. I'm assuming the cake's been eaten and the candle's been blown out. There's that post birthday reverie, and uh, someone goes to check on the tub after Katya's left it. Water's still warm. Yeah, sure. No one's around. We're not doing anything. What are you going to do? You haven't had a bath in months, probably. You're going to get in that tub, aren't you? And that's hair petting, Dad. I'm a little, like, look, I will admit, a little bit of a germaphobe, not a huge germaphobe. But one thing that supersedes my my germophobia is, is like, 
a bathtub after being dirty for a long time. That sounds great. I'll get in a used bath. I will get into Katya's bath water if I need a bath bad enough. The, the soldier in the tub is so sudsed up, you can barely make him out, but sure as shit, that's Angel in there. Uh, getting some good lather out of that water also. I don't even know where he got that good soap. Yeah. Uh, it's... I. I mean, you hope there's ash in that soap. Yeah, right. That seems to be a pretty big complaint uh, going around town is the whole uh, lice problem. But there he is, enjoying uh, enjoying two hours ago's bathwater. That's me right there. That is my guy. Any bathtub in a storm. And I feel like I'm stealing your guy in the process, John, because you're a famous bathman. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but maybe you can use the bat- bath after me. Third in line for the bath. The water's probably still warm. The thing about Angel is that he is, uh, you know, a man of about my age. Mm-hmm. And he had a wife mm-hmm. who was younger. Uh, yeah. Significantly uh, younger. 26 years younger. Yeah. And then she dies and their child dies in the war. And there's a and he, there's a friendliness to him and a kindness to him. But he definitely feels like he's given up. He's not trying to make it with Katya. He's just like... He walks right up to Creepo, and there are a number of areas where that could have crossed the line. Wife, 26 years, his younger, not a great look. Hair petting, not a good look. A totally desexualized use of a bathtub after a young lady uses it, not a good look either. All of those things together don't don't crucify him as a character. No, he looks he ends up looking fine throughout it all because he's because he's neutered and so it can't be it can't be me. He is neutered, yeah. isn't he? No, I can't have a I, my guy can't be somebody who's just like given up. Cuz <laughs> That's not you. No, I'm <laughs> yeah, still That's clearly a me thing. I'm still looking for a for a wife that's 26 years younger than me. <laughs> um no, my guy is right at the beginning of the movie when they're when uh, all of our troops are massing on the on the one side of the river, getting ready to go through the the hellstorm. We see a soldier who is sixty eight, who's got his helmet on, and he is just like, and there's some young you know some young soldiers wisecracking, and he's like, "Shut the hell up! You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you guys with your wisecracks." <laughs> Going in with his fucking kid. Yeah. He's like, here we go. And he's been through the shit, this guy. And he's not here because he's like some volunteer that joined up after 9-11. He's basically forced by life to be here. And he's making the best of it by being a crank. And, you know, like when he catches on fire... He is not charging up the hill with his machine gun firing because he's 65 and he's tired, but he's still got, he's still got his moxie. You know, he isn't neutered this one. Did you also choose boat dad from Dunkirk as your guy? Because I think this guy qualifies as a boat dad. He's a super boat dad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My guy was the, uh, was the young guy that was making the wisecracks. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Ha, That's great because he, he says he says a line like one of the few lines I really liked in the movie was we are all apostles now and then he gets he gets immediately pilloried for it yeah. by this cranky old boat dad yeah shot down by the boat dad barely out of diapers and you make jokes yeah and then he shoves his hands in his pockets and looks down at the at the floor of the boat and goes nier, 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 nier. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good crack that's you and me. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's us, John. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right, guys, what are we watching next on our hit podcast, Friendly Fire? Only the 120-sided die can tell us. Okay, here we go. Rolling the die. Whoa, this may be the highest number. We've ever uh, we've ever achieved on the die one hundred and eleven. One hundred and eleven. Nice. Uh, more Russians in our future, gentlemen. This is a Cold War film from two thousand two. Director Catherine Bigelow. Oh, our friend Catherine Bigelow. It is K nineteen, The Widowmaker. This movie has a colon in it. Uh oh, that's a bad. It sign. does not. Oh, I don't think I don't I don't think canonically there's a colon in between K nineteen and the Widowmaker. Oh, I'm no, looking on IMDb there on... and there's a big fucking colon there. Wow, uh, everybody I know has a big colon. Uh, well, whoever put it in our uh, spreadsheet, I see that that was you, Adam. Mm-hmm. Failed to include the colon on our spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that checks out. This does feel like an Adam movie. K nineteen, the Widowmaker. It's got uh, it's got Harrison Ford in it. It's uh, got, it's got uh, Liam, Neeson. Liam Neeson in it. That's uh, that's right up Adam's uh, bowling Colin. alley. Yeah. <laughs> what did Come we on. De- what did we decide that it's a movies- submarine film and you yeah. know you guys are gonna love it. What did we decide about colon movies? What was our what was our hot take on those? The uh, it's the USS Indianapolis colon Men of Courage problem. Right, 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 right. Uh, but uh, Catherine Bigelow's no slouch, so uh, I'm looking forward to this one. She makes a great movie. Well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, we will leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. In the meantime, so for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.